Hello. Welcome and thank you for joining us and listening to our podcast, The God Beyond the Bible. Our podcast is released weekly each Friday. The content of each episode is based on the questions and curiosities we all have about God and the Bible. Many of our topics are considered taboo in the minds of the mainstream church. You will find our discussions to be, I think, refreshing and often far from traditional. But we don't just skirt around these complex issues, but confront them head on, and not in the way you're used to hearing them discussed on typical Christian talk shows. I'm Alan Rowland, creator and host of The God Beyond the Bible. As of the launch of this podcast, I've been a pastor for more than 35 years. My co-host is my daughter, Trayson, and our engineer, co-producer, is my daughter, Tabitha. Our mission is to encourage our audience, along with us, to open our minds to the reality that God is simply too big to be fully explored or experienced by the reading and studying of a single ancient work. In short, the Bible's not the sum of God, and to think this is to limit what He has done, is doing, and what He will do in our future. So with introductions made, thank you for listening, and let's dive into the topic of the day. Okay, welcome listeners to God Beyond the Bible, and of course, as usual, this is the podcast by Seekers and for Seekers. I think this is episode number 22, and I just want to say thanks to our, all of our listeners, uh, regular listeners and new listeners everywhere, and uh, all of the folks that comment, and, and hey, Kirk, I want to say to you, I did not, wasn't able to get to your comment. We have to go through a special deal to be able to see your comment, and yeah. I didn't get to it. I, I waited too late to look for it, but I will look for your comment on the last one. What was our last episode about? Uh, the power of speech. <laughs> power of positive power of speech. Yeah. That's right. Okay. All right. So we have any shout outs today? Yeah, to Tim in Costa Rica and to Linda, who has been um, pretty active on our Facebook page lately. Awesome. Thank you, guys. And let me say, I was going to say this in the introduction, yeah. hopefully I apologize for last time for uh, the my vocals being a little out of balance. I was a little loud, and we had we just had some real technical yeah. issues, some gremlins in our board yes. and all that <laughs> stuff. So hopefully this will be a little smoother and a little better. Just want to say thanks for just looking over all that stuff. <laughs> so we are in episode 22, and our topic is our first listener-inspired episode. Um, actually, this one came from Charles. I, I know say, we mentioned him quite say, a bit. Can we tell who done it? This is this yeah. is a Charles suggestion for an episode. And guys, we do love the suggestions. You can leave them oh, on our absolutely. website, yeah. email them, Facebook, whatever. Um, but our topic is husbands, wives, and weddings, and how this thing we call marriage got its beginning, and how it's observed in different cultures, and how it's evolved through the ages. And jumping into segment one of this three-segment episode, uh, in this segment, we're going to look at the biblical origins of husbands and wives. Oh, you might get surprised with this. Okay, so a very interesting fact is how quickly the assumption of marriage is reflected in the Bible, yet it has pretty much been at the discretion of the translators. In our English Bible, we, of course, we see the term husband and wife appear in the early second chapter of the first book or the book of Genesis. And the interesting part is that the translators really took a great liberty in promoting the husband and wife concept, mainly because of the way they chose to translate the words themselves. Well, an, ex- and the, an example we want to use is the Hebrew word translated wife can be properly, can be properly translated wife, mm-hmm. but it is solely at the discretion of the translator. The Hebrew word is nashim. It's actually N-A-S-H-I-Y-M, our English part, but nashim. 
It is the Hebrew word for woman. It's number 802 in the Strong's Concordance, if you're a Strong's Concordance that language. I love my Strong's language. Concordance. Yeah. Uh, the word wife in our English Bible first occurs in Genesis 2.24, where the English Bible reads, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, mother <laughs> and mother, and father, let me say, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall become one. Now, you've probably heard this in a wedding ceremony or two. I have. The word translated wife here is the Hebrew nashim. Okay. And what makes this so incredibly interesting is that same word is used in the two preceding verses, but it's translated woman. Genesis 2.22 reads, Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib and brought her to the man. And in verse 23, at last, the man exclaimed, This one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. In both of these verses, the same Hebrew word, nashim, is translated woman, yet in the very next verse in 24, it's translated wife, which if you think about it, changes the whole complexion of our interpretation of what that verse is trying to say. Now, now let me just jump in here and yeah. say for a minute, translators will say, well, it was the context. We mm -hmm. use the context to decide sure. which way. But, but this context, is where... But context does not change in those three. Here we have those three verses, uh, Genesis 2.22, woman, nashim, woman, mm -hmm. 2.23, nashim, woman. When we jump to the next verse, 24, it says wife. Yes. Nashim, the same word. Okay. So, in other words, if the translators had followed the pattern of the previous verses... Verse 24 would have read, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to the woman, and these two shall become one. The truth is, guys, that this is a procreation verse. When the man and the woman cleave together, they become genetically one in their children. In fact, the last part of that verse is properly translated in the King James Version, and the two shall become one flesh. The coming together of the two genetics shall produce a single combined genetic product, a child. And think about that in this context. Whatsoever God has joined together, let, let no, no man, man put asunder. Hmm. Genetics. Yeah. You can't. No man. We can't separate the genetics once they're together. Did you ever thought of that? I have. But we use that in a whole different context. That con is really interesting. We use that in yeah. a whole different context. Whose turn is Is it my Yours. turn? Okay. I'll just jump in when I want to. <laughs> uh, when we take away the connotation implied by Nashim being translated wife, and we make it woman, it is clearly about reproduction, at least in that verse, mm -hmm. uh, in, in many verses, and for in for lack of better words, it's more reproduction than a romantic relationship. The fact is the Hebrew word Nashim is used approximately 569 times in the Old Testament, and it's translated wife 314 times and woman 255 times, all seemingly at the discretion of the English translators. Translators did the same thing in the New Testament with the Greek word gune, gune yeah. <laughs> translating it one time woman and another time wife. And they really did. Hmm. Both the Old and the New Testament do the same thing with, for the word for husband. Both the Hebrew and Greek are a word that simply means man, but it's translated husband one place and man the other. And it's kind of funny, this word was... Adam, Adam. Adam. Really? Adam was that word, Hebrew word. 
Just thought I'd throw that in. So there we've got the biblical perspective. And so see, nearly everybody, when you, they talk about, don't they, when they talk about, well, where do we get the concept of marriage? Well, it goes all the way back to Genesis 2.24. Mm-hmm. It starts in Genesis. And for this reason, a man shall cleave unto his wife. Right. And it really said the woman. Interesting. Okay. Yep. As that in this? That brings this one to a close. All right. Welcome back, Seekers, to the podcast, God Beyond the Bible, the podcast by Seekers and for Seekers. And of course, this is episode, I can't get anything right today, episode (laughs) 22, and today's topic is marriage or weddings or whatever it is. And of course, we want to again thank Charles for giving us this idea. Okay, so in segment one, we investigated the words translated husband and wife, and we found that they are the Hebrew and Greek words for man and woman. And they're pretty much at the discretion of the translator, and which way they are translated influences how we interpret that passage. And a great example is in Genesis 6, where we're introduced to the Nephilim. And the passage says, And the sons of God saw the daughters of men were beautiful, and took them for and took for themselves wives of all that they desired. Again, this passage should have been women. The translators led us to assume they somehow entered into a marriage agreement with these women. I found that really complicated years ago before I really started studying any of the language or anything. And I thought, wives, I mean, did they have a ceremony? These, And if they're angels or whoever the Nephilim yeah. are, did they have ceremonies? It says they took wives, plural. Mm-hmm. In other words... I don't know, but it it just seems to change the connotation of the whole thing. So in this segment, we'll look at the biblical concept of marriage, uh, how different the concept of marriage and 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 the how different the concept of marriage is in all of our well, a lot of our different cultures. Mm -hmm. So the word wedding is actually not in the Old Testament at all. There doesn't seem to be a Hebrew word for wedding as we know it today. The first time wedding appears in the Bible is in the Gospels and is from a Greek word. And that actually fits really well because the Greeks seem to really have invented this idea of okay. a monogamous oh, marriage. Okay. But um, the word married doesn't appear until Genesis nineteen fourteen says that Lot went and told the men whom his daughters had married to get out of Sodom. That was the King James translation. However, the actual translation more accurate, accurately would have been fiancé or men to whom he had promised his daughters. Again, translators took liberties that somewhat skewed the interpretation of the reader, and that's the only time the word married appears in the entire book of Genesis. Now, the word marriage appears in Genesis 34-9 in a sort of creepy dialogue. <laughs> Has anybody read this? Did you guys yes. go back and read this? Yeah. This little sort of a creepy dialogue, I don't know any other word to put, where one of Hamor's sons, uh, Sechem, had raped one of Jacob's daughters. Her name was Diana. And Hamor tried to appease the incident with his son, Sechem, marrying Diana. Wow. That was his suggestion. Suggestion. As a matter of fact, if you read that, it's kind of weird. It says, and then after he raped her, he fell in love with her. Mm-hmm. That's just, anyway, yeah. I, I, something we're missing there, I guess. But anyway, so Hamor, Sechem's dad, tried to smooth this all over with Jacob by suggesting that he married Dinah, uh, Dinah. 
And then he proposes that they arrange all kinds of exchanges of sons and daughters between <laughs> the two families. So we really don't have much biblical information at all about what constitutes, constituted a marriage. For the most part, as it is in many Eastern cultures, it was an arrangement, often strictly for you know, a financial or political deal, and romance had little or nothing to do with it. And it's still a lot that way today. It is. Mm -hmm. I actually was reading, and it says that worldwide, something like 53% of marriages worldwide are actually arranged. And we think, see, and we, in Western culture, it, we're going to talk about that later, but we just think it's romance. Yeah, exactly. Um, so anyway, it was a financial or political deal, and romance had little or nothing to do with it. But if romance did, such as with Jacob and Rachel, it had to be a financial transaction. In fact, let's go ahead right here and talk about relationships involving multiple wives. It seems that Jacob took both of Laban's daughters as wives, Leah first and then Rachel. Well, and I'm going to throw in here, too, um, as far as when we get into what constitutes a marriage, the first records that we have come from about 2350 BC from Mesopotamia, and the Greeks seem to have adopted this idea of a marital contract where the two families would stand in front of each other, but the wedding vows were a little bit different, and they actually stayed this way um, until about the 4th or 5th century AD, but the father-in-law would stand in front of the two families and say, I pledge my daughter for the purpose of producing a legitimate offspring. And the other family would say, we accept. And the marriage was complete. So it, it, wasn't, wow. really, it wasn't vows. It was vows between the yeah, families. The, families, the bride yeah. and groom never said anything. That explains huh. a lot. But the fact is that multiple wives really seem to be the norm of the Eastern culture including many of our biblical patriarchs, which brings us to the question, when did marriage become strictly between one man and one woman? Are you going to answer that there? <laughs> That's a hard one to find, but it's actually polygamy or polygyny, as Tabby discovered. Um, the two, polygamies, a man taking multiple wives, polygyny. Well, polygyny is having multiple wives, and then there's polygamy. polyandry or Palindry, however you yeah. want to yeah. say it, that is having multiple husbands. And polygamy covers both. And, and let's go ahead. I want to say something right here. How many times have you heard a preacher say, well, that was sin. That was Jacob was sinning. Oh, yeah. He was going, that was Jacob's mm -hmm. sin. He went against God. And, and they say because, and, and then you ask him, where did then, where did God say it's between one man? All the way back there in Genesis 2.24 when he said, a man shall take his wife. Yes. Isn't that the verse that yeah. they always go yes. back to? yeah. And it, it was really hard for me to find information because researching this, I kept coming back to the same, you know, over and over. But the Greeks were actually um, one of the first to really believe in monogamy and only having one spouse. And the Romans were actually very strict monogamous as well. However, you know... Um, so it sounds like honestly being more than a biblical thing, it was a cultural well, yes, it was. It was the cultural. If, if you're going to go with the biblical norm of the Hebrew Bible, I mean, right. let's, let's, hey, can we talk about this without bringing Solomon up? Well, no. <laughs> huh? But see, no. when you go into researching it through apologetics and things mm -hmm. like that, you tend to get these ideas of, well, you see, it's never presented in a positive light. They're always telling you what went wrong. Yeah. In yeah. other words, the I multiple read, yeah. wives. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's so that was there to show us how mm -hmm. wrong it is to do all of this. But you know, uh, 
I don't think, you know, David had multiple wives. I'm not saying, I mean, who, what man in his right mind? I'm just saying. But. Oh, and it was actually. <laughs> y'all, I knew that, that would just, be thrown that, in here that just somewhere. right over Tracy's head or she just ignored it. I just. <laughs> off of my own. Um, you know, does the Bible itself even promote anywhere this idea of marriage bet- being between one man and one woman? Boy, we stand on the street corner and claim it does. I mean, how many of those people on television? I mean, law. Yeah. I mean, all of this stuff you hear, it's, it's you know. Well, and I always go back to, you know, I know Paul said some things about husbands and their wives, and he used the singular form. But you're also talking about the same guy who really thought it was better if you didn't get married yeah. at all. I'm going to throw you guys a curve, though. And Tabitha and I have already talked about this a little bit. Uh, do you know, and we're going to talk about it in the last one, but do you know actually why marriage laws uh were actually instituted in the colonies and in the United States to begin with. And did you know that we didn't have any real universal marriage laws till 1920 mm-hmm. about issuing yes. licenses? Do you know why the state decided, does anyone here know why the state decided to issue licenses and, and confirm marriages or, or disallow marriage? What it was about? I think I do, but I want to hear your answer. Well, it was, it was, it was to prevent interracial marriages. Oh yes. Even the United States did not want white men Marrying other races, white mm-hmm. men or white women, marrying mm-hmm. black men or black women. And it was, and guys, this is not just made up. This is really what the law was about. We have to stop these interracial marriages, mm-hmm. and, and that's what it was all about. Well, it seems that weddings and marriages are as much a result of culture and tradition as religion. Do y'all think that's true? Yes. yes. This institution varies with every culture as far as what is acceptable and how the right is performed. You know, saying in that, we find some of the things that other cultures do is just, that's just insane. Mm-hmm. Because we're a whole different culture. We've, we've built oh. a whole different culture around this idea of marriage. And we've even made it such a deep religious thing. And it's really a cultural thing. It's really never was a religious thing. Right. Well, and I found out in some of my study that, you know, there was still a battle, guys, over this polygamy thing up until the ninth century A.D., and once again, it was the Catholic Church. Well, well, and we're going to talk about it probably later. But the church is actually the first one that came up with the idea of issuing licenses. And it was not the Roman Catholic Church. It was the Church of England. Mm-hmm. The Church of England was the very first church to decide we're going to issue licenses, permits by the church. And they're going and the, and the church would issue the license. And then you would go file it with us with the government. Right. Yes. It was strictly an issuance of the. It was strictly an issuance of the, of the of the church. Right. So with so little to go on biblically, it seems what is right and acceptable is dependent more on the social and cultural views. So in the next segment, we're going to look at our Western culture and approach to marriage as opposed to most of the rest of the modern world. And of course, that brings us to the end of segment two. And welcome back, Seekers, to segment three of episode 22 of the podcast, God Beyond the Bible, the podcast by Seekers and for Seekers. And today's topic is marriage. Uh, In segment one, we saw how translators of the Bible seem to use liberty to interject the idea of marriage by using their discretion to translate the words for man and woman to husband and wife where it seems suitable. And in segment two, we asked the question, when did marriage become an institution consisting of one man and one woman? 
which brings us into segment three, where we're going to talk about how marriage and weddings have evolved into what we know today, especially here in the West, namely the United States or America. Well, let's start with the question, where and why did government get involved in the business of marriage, especially as it is in America where it is sanctioned by the issuing of a document by the government in the form of a license? Does anyone so, want to take that? In America, the first laws that we had governing marriage came with the colonists, and it was a legal doctrine called coverature, and it actually established the male legal dominance in the relationship, oh and that is where we get our tradition of giving your last name to your wife because she was legally no longer a person. She was a part of you. And let me say, they buried, really, they didn't come much uniform laws until the 1920s. No, they were all... About issuing, about because there were yes. states up till the 1920s that still were not really issuing. In other words, what it really became is a whole legal financial thing that there were certain, and it, it's really more about your inheritance and your mm -hmm. rights to the property. Mm-hmm. This license is more than it, but but anyway, has anyone researched and found out if we're the only society that allows government to regulate and advocate uh, who's married and who isn't? How long has it been the business of the government? Well, I do know that every society has some form. You know, you have to mm -hmm. obtain a marriage license in just about any country that However, I researched. In some cultures, you know, the marriage license allows you to even be married to someone who's deceased. Okay. I, I, I don't know what to make out of that. It's called a ghost marriage, and it's for families who want the property of another person. They can marry their living child to one who has passed away and actually inherit the property of that family. But it really wow. comes down to this. That's the main benefit that we have of the government exactly. issued, government sanctioned. It's all legality, right? It's yeah. all about whose rights what your rights right. are is pertaining to property. That's what it comes down to. Okay, next question. When and why was it decided to be one man and one woman? And when and why was it decided to be a crime to have multiple marriage partners? You want to take that one? No. <laughs> I really don't. It was all, it was really, uh, Tabitha had some good insight. I'll tell us about how Abraham Lincoln, uh, the influence that Abraham Lincoln had on one man, one woman. Okay, well, the first thing I found was it's called the Moral Anti-Bigamy Act, and it was a federal enactment by the U.S. Congress. It was signed into law on July 8th of 1862 by President Abraham Lincoln. This was sponsored by Justin Smith Morrill of Vermont, and the act banned bigamy in federal territories such as Utah right. and limited church and nonprofit ownership in any territory of the U.S. to 50,000. The whole purpose of this was to target was the, the Mormons. Mormon. It was the Mormons. It was to target yeah. Mormons, the practice of plural marriage. And plus, you know, the United and, States, and they had a lot of property and in listen, the Latter-day Saint it Church. Wasn't, it wasn't about a moral issue. No. There was never about the morality or biblical or morality. Mm -hmm. Abraham, also, but Abraham Lincoln is our, but it didn't have, it had to do with Money. the expansion of the Mormon faith and those people were growing. They owned a big part. I mean, yeah, they, they, they inhabited did. a big part of the Western territory. They did. But go ahead. I didn't mean well, to Well, no, that's okay. And, and that's what it was. It was to target the Mormon practice of plural marriage 
and the property dom- dominance of the Latter-day Saint Church in the Utah Territory. In other words, they limited. And go ahead and tell about the Civil War. Then then Abraham Lincoln compromised, right? Right. He, so the measure that they passed had no funds allocated for enforcement of this law at all. <laughs> and so Lincoln chose not to enforce the law. Instead, he gave Bigham Young, who was one of the, I think they call them prophets. The prophet, I can't yeah, remember. yeah. The, but he was, gave the, him, he was the big dude. Right. Mainly, I don't know. <laughs> I don't want to offend our Mormon friends. No, no. I just, uh, he's a top dog. But he top gave dog. him tacit permission to ignore the moral act in exchange for not becoming involved with the Civil War. So, see, it's 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 financial, political. Yeah. It's everything but moral. Well, and I they never was... enforced that act until 1887. Really? was the first time they ever enforced it. I thought it was really interesting when I found out, too, that, you know, it wasn't until the Council of Trent in 1563 that the Catholic Church officially recognized marriage as a sacrament or a ceremony that bestows God's grace and that it was written <laughs> into their canon law at that point. I would have thought it was much earlier yeah. in the story. But is it still a marriage if it's not government sanctioned with a license? Well, that's a question a lot of people ask. You know, in the 1960s, in rebellion, many in the, I, I, you know, hippie has such a terrible connotation, but in that movement of the 1960s, rebellion against government, rebellion against government control, mm-hmm. they, a lot of them just cohabitate, co- cohabitated, yes. is that what it's mm-hmm. called? They lived together, lived in sin. Well, and- no, they, li- they lived together. And this, all this was just a, and what they did is made it a moral issue, right? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Well, that's what I was going to say. Has anyone noticed that we've come to substitute this government sanction, this marriage license from the state, above any spiritual or religious importance? Well, let's just, and we're going to talk about this. It's probably going to be mentioned again, but let's just let's just take an imagination. You don't have to imagine very far. There's a man and a woman, and they're living together without the license. Mm-hmm. Maybe they've been together for 10 years, 20 years. 30 years committed to each other yeah, without the license they go and they start being a part of a church what's the first pressure that the church starts putting on them you need to get married you need to get married and by that what do they by mean? obtaining that license from the state need that to get says that you're married government sanction is it up to me we here in our american culture are the minority of the world who have made marriage a romantic institution only in the past 150 years, in fact, instead of a practical or financial arrangement. In the early pioneer days of settling most uh, of settling America, most marriages came about through supply and demand. Both the man and woman were needed to successfully homestead, clear, farm, improve uh, a piece of ground to make it productive, and yes, populate a new area. Uh, when there was shortage of women, especially as the West was settled, there were many businesses, companies, if you will, who brokered in sending women West at the request of mayors and cities and government agencies. Even our own government said, we need to send some women out there Mm -hmm. to marry these men. And often the contract would already be agreed. I mean, the guy would fund for a woman to be sent from the East. Right. And there was... Just to get what you get or... And I know so right here, I want to tell that you That would about, be kind of like a mail-order bride, basically. Yeah, well, I mean, and, we, and don't we look so dimly at that? Yeah. Oh, he just, he's, it's one of those mail-order brides. Well, yeah. I found it really interesting when I did some research, and I was reading some stuff that up until the 1940s and 50s, even in the U.S., a lot of times it was, you know, 
financially first. You get married to someone who can take care of you, and you'll fall in love with them later. I know right here on Highway 110, there was a man I can remember, uh, and I'm not going to say his name. He's deceased now, but our, the story, was, in fact, his marriage proposal to his wife was this. Her name was Molly, and he spoke with a real rough, kind of like my old man voice. He said, Molly, if you'll help me clear this 40 acres, I'll marry you. And she helped him clear the 40 acres, and they stayed married until he died. I love it. Wow. That was the arrangement. That was the agreement. And he and he held up his marriage. So, uh, so you know, just we, we've made this romantic thing and religious thing. Yeah, we you have. Know, you know, something that, it, that it, we've made it religious, romantic, and we've tried to incorporate it. And we've really kind of made a mess. We have. I'm just being honest with you, in my opinion. So just 200 years ago, most marriages in America were arrangements of, like we were talking about, demand and convenience, and they were seldom affairs of romance in agricultural and working class. Romance was mostly reserved for the wealthy, and often keeping wealth in the right circles and right families superseded the romantic interest of a son or daughter. Well, we all know that Romeo and Juliet thing, right? Oh, yes. Um, So what influence has money and profit had on the joining of two people in matrimony? We call it holy matrimony as if we're making a divine quote, but it's not in the Bible. That was sanctioned by the Roman Church. Mm -hmm. The Roman Catholic Church started calling it. So what about that? Let's don't don't skip over this. Uh, What influence has money? Let's just talk about a wedding. Uh, Let me just tell you an experience as a pastor that I see all the time. People, a young couple will come to me and want to be married. They'll want to get married. And we're just going to keep it simple. We're just going to have this deal. We're just going to come to your house or we're just going to, and that's really cool. And mm-hmm. I'd say, hey, it sounds to me like you're using your head. Then I'll get a call a couple of weeks later. And that call will usually be from the daughter, from the girl. And she'll say, well, you know, we were going to just do this. But my mom told me that this was a big event and I didn't need to just get started. I need, and mom got involved and then mother-in-law got involved. Mm-hmm. And then, and, and I'm not picking on any, listen, guys, I've seen this. I could write you a book. And suddenly this turns, and, and I've watched the bride and groom be so frustrated. Yeah. Well, we have a friend who actually called off her wedding after the stress, her and her fiance have been together for years, happily together, and they started planning a wedding, and it just became it a morphed. Ca- yes, it, did. it morphed, and we do that. And did you know that advertisers? Did you know that the whole diamond thing was successfully done by a diamond company, mm-hmm. and that whole thing that a diamond is forever. That came from a company promoting that if you really, that was an expression of your love, if you gave her a diamond and even the poor and working class people would go out because it became so ingrained in, a, and it was a commercial, guys. Yes. It was purely a commercial venture, and wow. that got so ingrained in our culture that it's almost religious, isn't it? Yeah. Because I mean, we've learned to combine the ring, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. We combine the ring into I the religious actually, ceremony. Well, I was actually reading a thing the other day of a woman saying that, you know, she could see how much her husband cared about their marriage because she found his wedding ring beside the soap dish where he'd washed his hands before he left for work. And that's that's how much emphasis we're putting on these material parts of... Hmm. Well, and just like what I was talking about, Poor and working class couples prodded into spending thousands on a single one or two hour event. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have witnessed, and I'm just looking around, you know, and I've been there, and here I am in my blue jeans and a white shirt because <laughs> I don't wear a suit and tie. I'm not a suit and tie guy. And I always tell them in a couple, I say, now, you know, if this thing morphs into something that's too big, don't 
don't be calling the president. Well, we need you to wear this blue suede, whatever, whatever it is, and, and to stay with our yeah. theme. We want you to look, because I tell them up front, if I'm going to do it, realize you're getting the real deal here, and it's <laughs> going to be a pair of blue jeans and a white shirt, and I'll put on a black tie with my boots, right. my black boots. If hey, that- you wore a polo shirt to my... Wedding. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Well, that's what I say. So, but how many poor and working class couples get prodded into spending thousands on a single one or two hour event? And a often, lot. and often it's the daughter's family. Mm-hmm. This is important. This is a big event, and you're only going to do this once, so you need to do it right. Well, let's go. Let's go another time. How many people do you know that are on their fourth marriage that's having a big old, oh, I never goodness. did do this with my other wives. I hear a guy say yeah. this, my other wife, or she, she, in her other husbands, in her other marriages, she never got to have a big church wedding like she always, so I'm going to give it to, so that's going to make him the best choice, right? That's the idea. But you know, and it. that's the emphasis, and this would be like a whole nother thing, but and putting, I know I sound putting it on when we talk about putting marriages on what they call love marriages, where we base it Romantic. on romance. Yeah. I've been married almost 20 years. Eventually, that's going to start to, there has to be, and sometimes. Let's talk about the failure rate of romantic marriages. Yeah, in Romantic the US, marriages. In the U.S., we base it on romance. You love the person. And, mm-hmm. Now, listen, guys. Feelings change, and pe- feelings change for the people we love. They do. And so, if you've based it solely on a, an emotion, a feeling, and that feeling changes, what happens? I'm just not in love anymore. So, yeah. that's a reason. We just don't yeah. love each other anymore. Go ahead. Well, I was. There was, um, in the U.S., between 40 to 50% of all marriages end in divorce. This mm-hmm. is just, I mean, it's, you can yeah. Google it, and that's the first thing that the pops one, up. The ones I marry, it's much lower. So. Mine's about 25. <laughs> I'm that's glad, comforting. About glad you didn't do my wedding. Yeah, I'm about, about 75%. Thanks, I think about, it seems like 75% of the ones I've done anyway. Go but ahead. anyway, according, I told you guys earlier, this was according to a 2012 study by Statistic Brain. of marriages are arranged worldwide. Okay. So over half the marriages, let me get my mind around this. Are arranged. Over half of the marriages, you know, we think they're all romantic. Yeah. But but over half of them have nothing to do. They have to do with family, uh, Mm -hmm. tradition, uh, finance, all that. Go ahead. So globally, the divorce rate for arranged marriages is Mm 6.3%. Okay. Now, I read a little deal. That said that said as Americans we have it backwards that these people get come into arranged marriages they have to work really hard at this marriage mm-hmm. they have to really work to make sure. this work because they don't hardly even know this person right. so it's really a new and they, they're having mm-hmm. to learn to in all of this stuff but there's usually an underlying financial yeah there's a reason reward. they reward need to that they need to sp- you need yeah. to keep this together you need to make this work and there's a real prodding there uh, be it mm-hmm. social or financial or whatever and then they say that though that most of those marriages then become a romantic they do and they end in romance i've always thought you know maybe the party with all of the gifts should be after you survive your first couple of years (laughs) that's your reward if you make it to like the one year mark or two year mark even the five years after you've been married for five years and i have to throw this out there too did you know that in Canada they are currently throwing around the idea of an expiring marriage license? I've always wondered why that's the only license that you never have to renew. This one would be on, you could buy a three, a five, or an eight-year license. And at the end of that period, it would either have to be renewed or... But I mean, look at the look at the thought behind <laughs> yeah, but, that. But, the whole, but no, it's not the thought behind it. The whole idea is lawyers are not going to let that happen. 
The well, money, the money, the money is not true. in the marriage. Where's the money? The money's in the divorce. You better believe. You think you think any legal practice and politician is going to allow that to happen? Oh, that's true. Very that's not going to happen. Uh, well, you know, rings, costumes, venues, all this stuff that people spend money on, all promoted by what? Tradition. tradition and big business yep. and subtle you know and and these are all subtly incorporated into tradition and religious culture mm-hmm. folks most of the things we do I, I did a message here a while back i don't know if both of you were there i did a lesson at church here a while back and about traditions and why we do traditions yes. mm-hmm. I, and i told about the tradition of the best man do y'all remember what the best man all what it came from you didn't listen did you i remember but I, yeah, yeah okay the best the best man was actually came from a phrase the best swordsman because these were there arranged fi- these were arranged financialists and if the father-in-law the guy giving away the bride uh-huh. if he defaulted if he didn't show up with the treasury if he didn't show up with all the goods he promised a sword fight broke out so what you did is you had your best swordsman at your side at the oh. wedding to make sure everything came to off. whoop up on them. Well, just to make sure everything. <laughs> and the other thing was that a lot of times they would go over and capture a wife from a yes. from a competing village. And hold her. And so her. so where where would they where was where's the where's the most vulnerable place that they're going to come and retaliate? The wedding. At the at the public wedding they come. So you had your best swordsman, and so we've incorporated best man. We do things we don't even know why we do them. That's true. And Thank we've you. made them religious. Mm-hmm. We've made them religious. Y'all got anything before we conclude? I think, I think we're ready to conclude. Well, conclusion. And I know I'm going to get some flack for this statement. But I think a couple who makes any type of vow to be a team is just as married. Now, I'm not talking about inheritance legally and all right. that stuff. But just as married as the ones who have the paper that sanctions it. Now, I've known couples who have been together for more than 30 years without the benefit of the marriage license. And what about the person who's been widowed and finds another partner later in life? And if they make the relationship official with the government sanction, they lose livelihood, they lose benefits that they've acquired from the first marriage. Yes. If they were in the first marriage, you know, military, a military pension. Yeah. If a woman mm-hmm. wo- woman goes ahead and draws her husband's military, and he, she should. Yes. She draws out his military pension because she was married to him. If she remarries after the husband dies, do you know she loses that pension? She does. And that's so unfair because they could have been married for 50 years. Yeah. And she finds someone after he's passed. And well, Let's go ahead and talk about the other side of this. What about divorce? We've become a culture that has become fixated on the legal aspect. When the divorce papers are finalized, then pursuing another relationship is okay, but not until. Have you ever run across mm-hmm. that? Yes. Yeah. Oh, I can't. No, we can't date. She's not. She can't date until she can't go. And I'm not saying. I'm not. <laughs> I've got to be really careful because I could tell you of an instance of a one where more than one time I've seen. Well, I can't have anything to do. You're not divorced yet. Yeah. As soon as those divorce papers come back, then we can start a we can start a romance. Or what about what about the church that looks down their noses at the couple who's committed to one another has been to, committed for years but doesn't have the government sanction. So they're pressured to make it legal, and then next Sunday everything's good. Oh, you've made it! Mm-hmm. You you've made everything right. You've made all the if there's and I'm not saying there's any wrong in what they were doing, but if right. you've made it all right, that's what that's her. What we, all I can say, friends, is follow your heart. A piece of paper is not going to muster one whit more of commitment out of a relationship. I'm not trying to tell you what to do with your life. I'm sure you've already had plenty of people doing that already. <laughs> But I do know, as God's creation, 
We're designed to love and to be loved. So until next time, for myself, Tabitha, and Trayson, God's grace, peace, and love be on each of you. Did you enjoy listening to God Beyond the Bible? Do you have an idea for an episode? Connect with us today. Visit our website at godbeyondthebible.com, all one word, or send us an email at email at godbeyondthebible.com, or you can visit us on Facebook. Just type God Beyond the Bible into the search bar.